following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your kindness and grace, and we do want to remember our brothers and our sisters in the Philippines, Lord, who have encountered a, or a, a great, Lord, natural disaster, Father, especially on the smaller islands. Uh, pray for Pastor Angelo, Lord, and the people within the, his church, God, there in Boracay. I thank you, Lord, for his commitment to you, his love for you and for your people, and I pray you would use him and, and the other men that I spent time with when I was there in January. I pray that you would use them in great ways, Lord, to be a testimony and encouragement in the midst of, Lord, just difficult times. Lord, uphold them, strengthen them, and God, may you use this Lord, to bring Yourself glory. May You use this, Lord, to galvanize Your church to come alongside and meet uh, the many needs that are there now. We pray too, Lord, that You would work in us as we go to Your Word and and look at what our brother Amos had to say, Lord, so many years ago. And Help us, Lord, to understand and apply it to our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we will be in Amos uh, chapter 5. This morning, and sometimes what I like to do is just have us uh, picture ourselves a little bit, put ourselves in that circumstance. So I, I thought this morning, as we look at Amos five, let's let's imagine ourselves as Israelites living in Bethel, um, in Israel, in the times of Amos. Times are good. Our economy is robust. Military is strong. Our borders are secure. The houses of worship are full. In fact, there seems to be a movement in the land towards God. And today is a day we celebrate one of our annual feasts. And the picture us there is we're leaving our beautiful home full of ivory furniture and we journey into town and we see many other families that are on their way there as well to celebrate. As we approach the center of town, we can smell the sacrifices burning and the incense and the various things as part of the worship service. We hear the buzz of the crowd. We see the many people that are uh, celebrating and expressing joy and time together. We hear singing, lots of singing. But then as we move closer to the center of town, the singing begins to die down and eventually stops. The crowd that is gathered around has become silent. As we work our way through the crowd a little bit, we can see the, the main altar in the center of town and we see Amaziah, the high priest, standing there. And on the other side of the altar, we see another man, a man who's dressed in what looks like shepherd's clothes. And he seems to be speaking. As we move closer and closer, we hear someone from the crowd say that, isn't that that crazy herdsman from Judah, Amos, who says he's a prophet of God? And then as you move even closer, in the midst of that festival, you hear Amos cry out these words. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And it's at that moment, Amos' words both shock you and concern you. 
brings questions. How could God hate our gathering together to celebrate these festivals in commemoration of him? How, how could he reject our offerings, refuse to even listen to our praises that we are singing? And why would it be so harsh and negative in that rejection of our worship? And it's probably a scene, maybe like the one I described, where Amos did proclaim these strong words. He condemned very harshly Israel's practice of worship in that day there in Bethel. And again, Bethel was the religious hub, the center of worship within the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And to answer the question of why God reacted so negatively to their worship, the the part that I read to you actually came later on in chapter 5. There's more that went before it. And so to understand why God responded in such a way, to their worship, we need to go back to the beginning. So if you could please stand with me as I read from Amos. We'll be reading chapter 5 this morning. This was the uh, fourth message uh, that Amos transcribes here in his book. They could have all been delivered at the same time or various times, but here he begins by with this term, here, phrase, hear this word, in order to indicate this is yet another message that he delivered to the people of Israel. So Amos 5, verse 1 begins, Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. She has fallen, she will not rise again. The virgin Israel, she lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says Yahweh, God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one who goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. But do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord, seek Yahweh that you may live, lest he break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it consume with none to quench it for Bethel, those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you, have not, you will not live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. Thus may Yahweh, God of hosts, be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas and in all the streets. They say, whoa, whoa. They also call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards, there's wailing because I shall pass through the midst of you, says Yahweh. Woe, you who are longing for the day of Yahweh. For what purpose will the day of Yahweh be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees a lion and a bear meets him. or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of Yahweh be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? 
I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sukkoth, your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says Yahweh, whose name is the God of hosts. Thank you. You may be seated. So Amos begins this fourth message, and he begins it in a rather peculiar way as he begins to chant a funeral dirge. Uh, That is a lament that would be given over one who has died, usually offered at a funeral. And Amos' hearers would have been startled by this dirge because as he expresses within it, the person lying in the coffin is Israel herself. In verse 3, Amos describes a military defeat that they will suffer. These terms as a thousand go forth and a hundred go forth. Those are a reference to uh, military operations. And Amos had alluded to uh, various attacks all throughout his book so far, right? Back in chapter 2, he talked about it. And again in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And then also in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. Here again in verse 3 of chapter 5, Amos describes a devastating impact that this will be on the militaries. 90% of the army will be destroyed. And what was it? What was the reason we have seen already in Amos why God was going to bring this judgment? you remember? What was the general issue that was involved? What was the sin or transgression that they were being accused of? Anyone remember? Their treatment of the helpless, right? Their oppression of the poor. Their neglect of the needy, their disrespect for those who had nothing. And we learn here in Amos 5 that ultimately that sin, that treatment of others was not a people problem. It was a God problem. The reason behind it ultimately was that they had a worship problem. And in the midst of this chapter, which again declares their coming judgment for that problem, God declares to them there is a way out. He shows them a a merciful, uh, he gives them a merciful option. He says, yes, you're, you're on the verge of destruction. Yes, you're just about to be taken out of the land by force. You're going to suffer consequences, both physically and eternally. Death is standing at your door knocking. And it is then when God declares actually three separate times within his message, a command, a call to action. And did you catch that? What word? He repeats it three different times. What does he say to them? Hello. Seek, right? Seek. Seek me and live. Seek Yahweh and live. Seek good and live. And again, Israel's problem wasn't that they were neglecting worship. It wasn't that they were not giving God anything. The problem was it was hypocritical worship. And so here in Amos 5, we see four principles to the path of genuine worship. Four ways that illustrate what it looks like to seek God and live. And the first principle that Amos gives we find in verses 5 to 7, which is to be devoted to God alone. Be devoted to God alone. Look back at verse 4. Again, it says, For thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. 
This word seek here that he mentions or repeats three different times is more than a casual search. It's not an informal inquiry. It is actually a, a, to search with intentment, with care, with earnestness, even a desperation as if you were looking for treasure. I don't know if I told you about my uh, my, my dear grandmother. Um, she, she was anxious about the Y2K threat. You remember the turn of the millennia? We were concerned all the computers were going to crash as the year flipped over to 2000. And my grandmother had been through the Depression, so she was very concerned. And so she had withdrawn a, a bunch of money, I think five five or $10,000. And she took the money, the cash, and she put it in a jar. And she took the jar and she dug a hole near a rock on her property and hid it there just in case. And well, as we know, the computer crash didn't happen. And so my grandmother went out to dig up the money jar. And the problem was she forgot which rock she buried it next to. You talk about seeking. My poor grandma spent countless weeks digging hole after hole trying to find that rock, especially she lived on a very large piece of property. And so that was the, uh, she kept calling all, hey, can you come up and help me? So my dad's out there digging, we're up there digging. But that's the picture. That's what comes to my mind when I see this word, seek. It's an earnestness. It's a focus, search. God said in Deuteronomy 4, 29, she did find the money, by the way. Um, God said in Deuteronomy 4, 29, from there you will seek the Lord And you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Hezekiah was an example of this. 2 Chronicles 31, Hezekiah says of him, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right, and true before Yahweh his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So it is a a seeking of God with all your heart. It's an undivided. It's a fully devoted. It's a wholehearted devotion to God alone. No division, no distraction, no competition. But Israel's problem was their worship was from a disloyal heart. Amos said in verse 5, Seek me and live, but, but do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. And again, the people in those days would be wondering, why not? I mean, those are the central places of worship in Bethel, which is, the again, the center part of worship. It was in the southern part of Judah. Gilgal was to the west of the Jordan. It was the place where the people of Israel camped before they entered the land. And in fact, it was a place where they had rededicated themselves, uh, circumcised themselves and dedicated themselves to their commitment to the covenant of the Lord. So these were both sacred places. And why would, why would Amos be saying here, don't go there? Don't go there. Well, if you remember, when the kingdom divided, right after Solomon died, and there was rebellion against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Jerob, the first Jeroboam, he took over the ten northern tribes of Israel. And in order to make sure that when they went back to celebrate the festivals each year down in Jerusalem, he didn't want that to happen because he thought they might end up wanting to reunify. And so he developed his own religion. He took some of the things in the worship of Yahweh and the Torah and he incorporated those with golden calves. Incorporated those with additional festivals, their own festivals that they would celebrate over and above and beyond what God had called for in the Pentateuch. You see, Jeroboam established a religious system that was based upon a polluted form of worship. And he set up two worship centers. He set one up in Bethel, the southern part, and he set one up in Dan, the northern part. 
And in Amos 7, we learn again that Bethel was the religious hub of the nation. But the place where God had originally met Jacob, the place where Jacob had said God dwells here, the place where Jacob was also called Israel, again, a sacred place, Jeroboam had turned and corrupted it. Amos mentions Gilgal, which again, as I said before, was also a place considered sacred and important in Israel's history. And apparently over time, after Jeroboam became king, another worship center had developed there as well with the same polluted worship. Amos also mentions Beersheba, which is kind of interesting because Beersheba wasn't in Israel. It was actually right at the very tip of the bottom of the southern tribe of Judah. And so apparently there were Israelites from the north who were making uh, pilgrimages down into Beersheba to celebrate their worship. But God says, don't, don't go to these places. These are places of divided worship. These are places where as you worship me and these other false gods, you're breaking the very first commandment that I gave you to have no other gods before me. He mentions down in verses 25 and 26, their forefathers did the same things in the wilderness. Yes, they they offered sacrifices. Yes, they celebrated some of the festivals and things like that. But they also were not faithful or genuine. Right. You remember at Sinai, what happened there? I'll give you a hint. Right. Golden calf or Peor. They sell. They worship the Canaanite fertility God there. And numbers talks about that. So. In contrast to their pseudo-worship of God, he says here in verse 6, don't, don't go to these false places of worship. Rather, seek Yahweh. Seek me and live. Seek the one true God. God is emphasizing here by repeating that statement, seek me and live or seek Yahweh and live. I, I want no competitors. I want no others vying for your affection. I want you and you completely and you totally. We're going to be looking in Hosea next as our next prophet in a couple month or two, one of the key verses in Hosea, Jesus repeats later in Matthew. As God says there to them, I desire your loyal love and not sacrifice. I want I want you, not what you bring. I want you. I want your loyal fidelity. I want your faithfulness. I want your commitment. I want your affection. And that would pour out in bringing things to him out of gratitude, of course. You see, God is fiercely jealous for our undivided attention, our undivided affection. He is loyal and he expects us to be as well. And shouldn't that be the case? I mean, think about relationships. Isn't fidelity at the very core and center of every relationship? For what destroys love and trust in a relationship? Right? Does not infidelity bring the most damage to a marriage? Or how would your children feel? If you were to say, I, I'm not sure that I love you. I mean, how would they feel if you showed more love and attention to someone else's kids? Again, is not an undivided commitment, a care, a loyalty, a faithfulness. Is not not the very center of any relationship with any person. That's just not only among people, but also with God. God is that way with us, isn't he? What did he say about forsaking us? What is he ever going to do it? Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8, he says, nothing will separate from you, you from my love. But just think about this. What if God had said, what if we came across a passage where God said to us, I will be your God for now. Let's just see how things work out. Because someone better may come along. What if God's commitment to us was conditional? How do you think that would affect our relationship with him? 
You know what? God, God desires and he deserves our loyalty because he is loyal. He is loyal. And that's why God hated the Israelites so-called worship so much because it came from divided affections. When they were showing up to worship, some things were part of the worship from the Torah, but they added these other things as well. And when they showed up for worship, it would be like you bringing your adulterous lover to your spouse's birthday party. That's how God felt about it. And that's why he reacted so strongly. That reaction is a very important lesson for us that our allegiance must be to Christ alone. There, there can be no room for other gods. There can be no room for other gods, for loving anything more than Jesus. So it's important for us to ask ourselves, is there anything that competes with Jesus for our affections? Does anything get you more excited than him? Do you give priority to other things over time with the Lord? You know, you have that planned time to spend with Him and these other distractions come along. Do you let them distract? I struggle with this a lot. I've been convicted by that. I'm giving priority to something other than Christ in that moment. How important is it, you, is it for you to come and to worship with fellow brothers and sisters? Where are you most tempted to sin? You know, sin at the end is disloyalty to God. What tempts you to be disloyal? You know, I think about as I was pondering that passage from Hosea 6 where God talks about his desire for loyal love. I want loyal love and not sacrifice. It brought to my mind a certain church in Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. Do you remember the issue, the concern that Jesus brought to them? He rebuked them, not for doctrine, In fact, he praised them for their doctrine. He praised them for their commitment. He praised them for their perseverance. He praised them for their pursuit of godliness. But he says, this I have against you. Your passion for me has grown cold. He said, your affection for me has dissipated. You have left your first love. Let that not become us, brothers and sisters. We can know his word so well, even practice it and yet not have that devotion to our Savior. Let us be devoted to God alone. To God alone. The second principle on the path to genuine worship that we see here in Amos is in verses 8 and 9, and that is to ponder God's majesty, to ponder His majesty. Now these two verses almost seem kind of like a parenthetical thought. They seem like Amos kind of just wedged him into his sermon because he was talking in verse 7 about the fact that the people were not, uh, that they were being unjust, that they were not showing justice or righteousness. And then he picks that same theme up again in verses 10 through 15. But we have verses 8 and 9 kind of squeezed in the middle where this passage that gives a description of God. Look at verse 8 again. It says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, Yahweh is his name. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortresses. Here Amos is reminding the people of the God who's calling them to seek him. And he mentions first that he's the one who created the stars, the constellations. And I I think he says that here instead of just saying generically the heavens. Because if we look later in verse 25, 26, it talks about the people and how they were worshiping some of the astral gods of the Assyrians. So God's saying, no, 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 they're not the ones that put the stars up there. God did. 
God did that. And then he moves from the creation of the stars to talk about his control over our star, the sun, which he brings morning and evening, it says. And then he talks about how God also brings forth the rain. And I find it interesting here. Do you you notice this is describing the water cycle? The waters come up from the seas and then God pours the rain out upon the land. I mean, imagine that scientific truth right here in the Bible. It's amazing. Verse 9, Amos turns from God's creative and sustaining acts as a demonstration of the power that he has and that that when God comes in judgment, there won't be any army that can stop him. No structure, no fortress that can defend against him. At the end of verse 8, he says, Yahweh is, is his name. And I think he's, he's placing this section here in verses 8 and 9 right in the center of the beginning of his message in order to focus attention on God. I didn't mention earlier that verses 1 to 17 form the first part of Amos' message. And if you look at the themes that he expresses going through those 17 verses, we have what is here a rhetorical device known as a chiasm. We've seen that before where there's a mirroring of the first verses match the theme of the last and then the second set of verses the second to last and so on here in chapter 5 the first verses verses 1 to 3 are a funeral dirge verses 16 and 17 go again back to a funeral scene verses 4 through 6 talk about seeking the lord again he goes back to that in verses 10 to 15 And then we have verse 7 talking about their injustice, their unrighteousness, which again he mentions in verses 10 to 13. And then we hit the center point, verses 8 and 9 of this chiasm. And that focus is on God. And I think what Amos is doing here, he's not just telling them certain characteristics to emphasize God is powerful enough to judge. I think there's something even more than that going on here. He wants them to take a step back and consider the majesty of God, to ponder His greatness. I think of, as I was reading this uh, this week, the psalm, Psalm 8, which Spurgeon called the psalm of the astronomer. David wrote it. I think he wrote it as he was gazing up at the stars in the sky. And he says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you should care for him or the son of man that you should take thought of him? And then he ends the psalm in the way he began when he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, that psalm really is a a picture. I can see David lying on the grass in the meadow and he's in the the pitch black of night. He didn't live around a city like L.A. with all these lights. And so he's able to look up at the sky and see the heavens. And as he does that, all he can do is be in awe of the majesty of God because he knows how those little lights got up there, doesn't he? And so he, as he's looking, all he can say is, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, our master, how great is your name in all the earth. I think there's a lesson here David and Amos are teaching us. You know, one great way to fix any worship problem, let me tell you, I used to do this at times. Get, Get in your car or get a ride if you don't have a car. Go outside the city of Los Angeles. Go up into the Malibu Hills or up. Highway 2 into Angeles Crest, Angeles National Forest. And this is what you need to do. Drive up there, get out of your car, and just look at the sky. Lay down, sit down, lay on the roof of your car, whatever. And just look at the stars. Gaze at them. And as you gaze at the stars, be reminded that every, every star you can see 
which some estimate between six to 10,000. Every star you can see, with my eyesight, it's more like one, but every star you can see, there are billions of stars beyond that you can't. And as you gaze upon those stars, think about this. Nearly every star can produce in one second more than a billion power plants on this planet can produce in a year. Think about that. Think about as you gaze up in the sky and look at those lights. Think about this, that that every one of them is at least several thousand times larger than or some of them millions of times larger than this planet. And God made billions of those. And think about as you gaze upon those stars, the distances, how far away they are from us. In fact, let me give you a little quiz. How close is the closest star to Earth? What, what is the closest star to Earth? Oh, first hour got that one too. I wanted to trick you. Yes, it's the sun, 93 million miles away. The next closest star. Anyone know what that is? Alpha Centauri A. Alpha Centauri A, it's about four light years, 25 trillion miles. That's the closest one. NASA's fastest aircraft would take almost 80,000 years to get there. That's the closest star. There are stars billions of light years, not billions of miles, billions of light years beyond that one. Ponder these things as you think about God put all of these things there. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You know, we worship what we are in awe of. We give praise to what we admire. We exalt what we're astonished by. And, you know, often our worship is small because our God is small. But if we were to truly grasp the unfathomable power of God, the amazing force behind His creation. We just talked about the stars for a moment here. Think about all the other aspects of God's creation. If you were just to ponder those things and to ask God as you ponder them to give you a a little bit more of a glimpse of His greatness. As you spend time in His Word, ask Him to give you a little bit bigger picture of how powerful And majestic he is. How do you think that would affect your singing? How do you think that would affect your prayer? How do you think that would affect your times with the Lord? How do you think that would affect your commitment, your obedience, your desire to be with him? The Israelites didn't worship God because they were not awestruck by God. Let us be careful that that we don't fall into that trap that's why we need to consciously remind ourselves. I'm, I'm serious about it. Take a trip outside of town. Some of the, if I can use this terminology, some of the most spiritual experiences I have had with the Lord were out there pondering His creation and, and praying to Him. Just amazing. Ask God to give you that greater glimpse from His Word and from His creation, and your worship will be transformed. Ponder God's greatness. We see a third principle here from Amos in the path to genuine worship, to authentic worship, and that is to love thy neighbor. Verses 10 to 15, 
shows this. This is where Amos gives a, a running indictment against the people of Israel for, again, their entreatment against the poor, the power brokers he addresses, the wealthy, the leaders, the judges, the city elders, the callous. Again, he describes and walks through another example, another way in which they were exploiting those who were in need. We saw this first back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, where Amos described that the needy were being unjustly forced into servitude and, and how the helpless were being treated as worthless and how even, if you remember, the poor as they brought garments to those they had borrowed money from and they brought the garment as a pledge to pay back. And, and God had said, if someone does that, you need to give them back their blanket by nightfall. They've shown you they have a pledge to pay back the loan. Now give them back that blanket so they can keep warm at night. And Amos said back in chapter 2, you're not even doing that. You're taking their blankets and you're using them to sit on during worship services. Or in chapter 4, verse 1, Amos condemned the wealthy women of Samaria for the feeding of their indulgences through the exploitation of the needy. And then here in verses 10 through 13, Amos describes yet another example of what they were doing. And that was a situation here where he talks about, he mentions the gate a couple of times. The gate was where the people would go. That would be kind of like city hall for us. That is where people would go in those days if they had a dispute or a legal matter that they needed to have settled. They would go to the city gate and that's where the judges or the elders of the city would be and they would hear the case and then make a decision. And Amos was describing here what would happen is those who were being oppressed or exploited, those who were being forced into servitude, those who were being charged excessive rent, they were being, they would go to the city gate and they would plead their case before the judge or the leader there and they say, This is what ha- is happening. Please help. But Amos says that those who were in power would also go to the city gate and they would bribe these judges. They would bribe these leaders and then thwart these people's attempt to try to get out of the misery they were in. And verse 10 says that. Any who tried to point out the injustice, if you were to show up there that day and you watch this going, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. It says in verse 10, you'd be hated. Or if you tried to speak truth, if you went on behalf of one of these helpless and spoke for them and tried to tell them what was going on, you would be abhorred by those at the gate. And as a result, verse 13 says that people stop speaking up anymore. They quit trying to influence the judges towards righteousness. And so injustice and exploitation only continued. And so Amos then declares in verse 14, Stop, stop, seek good and not evil that you may live. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, that the Lord of God of hosts may be with you, just as you have said, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. He's saying that's the first step of repentance here, folks, is go and make things right. If you have a genuine heart that desires to worship me, you need to fix what's happening at the city gate. Notice here how he says true repentance will be involved with upholding truth, pursuing righteousness, doing what's right, in effect, loving your neighbor. Because here we see God intertwines a relationship with one another in our worship. They're connected together. In fact, look ahead at verse 24, where after God had declared how he despised their worship in verses 21 to 23, he says here, instead of this hypocritical worship that you come offer me, you're doing all these wicked things to one another during the week, and then you come here and offer these festivals, do these festivals and bring these offerings. You know what? Rather this, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
You know what he's telling them here? He's saying, I don't want to see you coming in here and singing praises to me, giving offerings, tithes, and all these other things. I don't want to see that until I see you treating others justly. Until I see you doing good to others. I want to see justice and and goodness and righteousness gush out of you like a flowing stream. Then come and worship. Then come and worship. And it's easy for us as believers to disconnect our treatment of others, especially fellow believers in Christ. It's easy for us to disconnect that with our relationship with God and see them as two separate things. That I can be one way with people and another with God. But God doesn't view them that way. The Apostle John saw this connection very clearly in 1 John chapter 4. That great chapter that talks about the love of God and God is love came from that chapter. And then he says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And then he says this in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Wow. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. If you claim the name of Christ, then there should be a love that you have for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And John was saying here that love for God and lack of love for a fellow believer is impossible. True believer will not consistently treat a brother or sister in Christ with hatred. That would be anti-God. And Amos says here in verse 14 of chapter 5, he doesn't say, seek Yahweh. Remember the first two times he said, seek me and live, seek Yahweh and live. Here he says, seek good and live. See, again, they're interchangeable to him. Now, I'm not saying all God cares about is you go out and do good works to make up for the bad ones, all right? Don't misunderstand me. We are only saved by the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. But what God is pointing out here is if you claim to be my children, you need to seek what is right and good for one another. To fix your relationship with me means you need to fix your relationships also with one another. They're not disconnected. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus talked about this, didn't he? The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Do you remember what he said about bringing our offerings to him while there's an ongoing conflict with another brother or sister? Remember what he said? Did he say, you know what, bring it anyway because, you know, I, I want you need to be doing this. It's your duty. It's your responsibility. You need to be showing me worship. So come bring the offering anyway. What did Jesus tell them they needed to do? Yeah, I knew you, I knew you guys knew this one. Right? He says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there. And first, go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and bring your offering. Present your offering. You know, Jesus is saying here, God cares how you treat one another. And he cares that you are right with them before you attempt to offer God any form of worship. And in our, our worship It's really hypocritical if we don't seek to be right with one another and then yet come and offer God worship. So don't fight with your spouse and then go do a Bible study without resolving it. Don't, uh, don't. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, we got marriage counseling needed over here on the left. (laughs) But it's true. How often do we do that? 
I, I remembered some situations where I'd, I'd have somebody call me on their way to church and they're in a fight with their spouse coming in. And I said, well, don't come in these doors, whatever you do. <laughs> you need to fix it first. Or don't be harsh or abusive or sin against your kids and then go to small group or go to prayer without first apologizing to them. Don't gossip or lie or tear down a fellow brother or sister in the Lord and then come in here and sing praises without first confessing it. If you know someone feels wrong or offended by you, don't don't seek to be close to God until you've gone to that person. And you know, I know many of most of us know this. There's been several sermons here in the last several years regarding this specific thing. And yet how easy it can be for us to forget it. How easy it can be for us to gloss over it, to ignore it, to not want to deal with it. Because it's hard resolving conflict. It's never fun. It's difficult. Or sometimes we're just too proud to admit that we were wrong, so we don't want to go deal with it. Oh, they got a problem with me? Well, that's their issue. Jesus says, no, it's yours. And go deal with it first. Then come to me. And our fellowship will be unified. But it won't be until you deal with the issue with the other person. We can't miss here how important God sees our relationships with one another. So if you have wronged someone, go make it right. If someone has wronged you, go to them graciously and let them know. If you hear of a situation or conflict between two folks, encourage both of them to resolve it. If they don't, step in a little bit and help them move towards reconciliation. This is how you and how we can foster genuine, authentic worship. To love our neighbor as ourself. Well, the fourth principle we see in verses 18 to 27 to foster authentic worship is don't rely on religious activity. Don't rely on religious activity. Amos here in verse 16, he closes out the message, uh, the first part of his message in the way that he opened it. He's back to a funeral scene. And after describing these people in mourning and directing it, that this is you, Israel, that, that this is happening to He ends with the phrase, I shall pass through your midst, God speaking here. That echoes a phrase that God delivered a couple of times back during the 10th plague in Egypt with the death of the firstborn. And he said, I will pass through your midst. That was also a great day of mourning. But apparently, Amos' hearers, as they're listening to God that he's going to pass through, they're thinking God is going to come to further bless them because they were his chosen people. We see that by the fact that in the next line, it talks about those who are longing for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord being the the time when God would visit the earth and bring judgment upon Israel's enemies. And also judgment upon any who are not turning to him and that he would restore Israel. And so they were thinking, if God were to visit, surely it would be to bless us. Surely it would be to, to restore us. But Amos says, hold on a minute. Whoa, you who are longing for the day of God's visitation. Again, that word woe is the, the idea of a, as a, at a funeral. That is something you would declare because they, they just weren't getting it. Obadiah and Joel, remember, they were former, earlier prophets. We talked about, they mentioned the day of the Lord and they talked about it again as a day when God would bring judgment on the nations. But they also pointed out, particularly Joel, that God would bring judgment on his own people as well. If they were in rebellion against him. But see, these folks, they missed that part. 
Or perhaps they thought that it didn't apply to them. For, again, they were the chosen people. They were enjoying great prosperity, a sign of God's favor. They were enjoying secure borders, again, a sign of God's favor. They were consistently going to worship God. Surely God would visit us, not with judgment, but with blessing. But Amos says, why, why do you want the day of the Lord to come? Do you, do you realize what that means? Do you understand what you're desiring to have happen? In your present condition, do you know what God's going to do? He's not going to come to bless. It says it will not be a day of joy, but of gloom. Not a day of light, but of darkness. It's a day that you're not going to be able to avoid. And that was the purpose of the little parable that he gives in verse 19, to express that point that God's judgment will be inescapable. And he uses this situation of a guy who's out walking one day and he encounters a lion. Something that would not be unusual in Israel. In fact, I heard it wasn't long ago there was a lion found in Griffith Park. Anyone hear about that? Okay, no one's going to go there now anymore. Yes, a mountain lion, actually. Not an African lion. A mountain lion was found there. But there's a lion out there, and somehow this guy manages to escape. And as he escapes, what happens? He comes upon a bear. Somehow, again, he escapes the bear. He gets to his house. He's enclosed in his four walls. He's safe and secure. As he leans upon the wall to, to catch his breath and to calm his nerves... Yeah, I hear it out there. A snake got him. And you know that the story would be humorous if it wasn't such a serious issue that Amos was talking about here. See, you you aren't going to escape. You aren't going to escape. No matter how hard you try, no place is safe. This parable is one that reminds that God's judgment can never be escaped. Only through... When God says, seek me and live, that's the only way out. We come to, check, to verse 21. The words that I read earlier from Amos at the altar in Bethel. And as we learned last week, again, these people were very active in their worship. They celebrated the feasts. They brought offerings and tithes. They sang praises to the Lord. Verses 21 to 23 show us that God, they thought God wouldn't bring judgment but blessing, because they were very active in these things. They relied on their religiosity. They relied on their external rituals. They relied on the activity in the name of God that they performed. But it was totally disconnected from their life. And how did God feel about that kind of worship? Verses 21 and 23. What kind of tone did you sense from that little section there? Yeah, God was very angry. Those first two words, hate and reject, those are two verbs that he puts together to really emphasize, I utterly despise, I abhor, I reject with great hatred your worship. I get no pleasure from your gathering together. I won't accept anything that you bring me. I won't even look at it. You're singing, it's noise. Wow, wow, that is strong. God is disgusted. By their worship. And Amos here lists seven verbs. Again, that number seven. Here he gives seven verbs to describe God's response in order to communicate the thoroughness and the completeness of God's rejection of their worship. Also, too, it's interesting some of the words that he uses here. That word for delight in verse 18, actually, its root word means to smell. And it was often used in the context of worship. You know, when God would talk about offering a soothing, a sacrifice that gave a soothing aroma. 
That, that root idea is in this word. And if you look at this section and how God responds, he touches most of the senses. He says, I, I, I don't want to smell what you bring. I won't accept it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to look at it. And I don't want to hear. It's communicating complete rejection. I mean, how, how bad is it when God turns his back in such a way? These verses we see here, are Israel's root problem. We see what, what actually is behind their horrible treatment of their fellow man. We see here why they committed violence and oppression and injustice. Because their corrupt living came from corrupt worship. They didn't love people because they didn't love God. For to God, worship is not an event. It is a lifestyle. It is a way of life because God wants righteousness and not religion. And God's extreme response here in verses 21 to 23 shows us exactly how he feels about hypocritical worship. Anyone who would harbor sinful life during the rest of the week and then come on Sundays to give service to God, how do you think God feels about that, given what we saw here? One preacher said, I believe God would rather have five minutes of true worship than five hours of phony religion. I think he'd rather have five seconds even of true worship. And though Amos's words here, they are originally addressed to primarily non-believing Israelites, they do give us some very important instruction about our worship, don't they? We need to be very careful, very careful about offering hypocritical worship. There are many, many people in churches across this land, perhaps even some here, who are just going through the motions like these people in 8th century Israel did. They do what they think God expects of them, to dutifully read the Bible, to go to church, sing with the congregation, go to Bible studies, even, even Wednesday night prayer meetings or small groups. But we need to ask ourselves, what, what is our life like outside of those times of worship? What does it look like? Is there no love for those in the body? Is there taking advantage of others? No time spent with God? If there's a habitual entertaining of your beloved sin or sins? If that's the case, then any worship that is offered to God in the midst of those things, God would see as hypocritical worship. Because in the end, God, God wants devotion, right? Not duty. He wants holiness, not hypocrisy. He wants relationship, not ritual. We see that even back in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 10, God declared this several times. Deuteronomy 10, 12, He says this, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Again, He's communicating their worship is more than an event. It's a lifestyle. The lifestyle that, that finds its center, it revolves around love for God. God's message through Amos desperately needs to be sounded by us in today's world because there are billions of people across this globe who are caught up in religious activity, hoping that will earn God's favor, and all the while rejecting allegiance to Christ, all the while not seeking forgiveness from Him for their sins, all the while not desiring to truly repent and turn to God and give them their full heart. There are entire religious systems, aren't there, that are based on external ritual. Those bound in these systems, what do they need to hear? What do they need to hear? Hear the message that Christ 
will forgive. Hear the message that he will transform. I know one thing that stuck out to me in my wife's testimony as she was sharing about, she was caught up in one of these religious systems. And somebody approached her one day and says, do you have a relationship with Jesus? It's like, never thought of that. And God used that to draw her in to recognize that the reason that we are to go to the cross in repentance is because of our sin and that the breach that it has brought about between our relationship with God. We have no relationship until we deal with that sin. We need to be reconciled to God. Matthew applies to us as well in regards to our relationship with God if we don't know Him. Because we do have, God has something against us. We need to go make it right. And so he sent Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins to make it right so we could be reconciled and then have a relationship which God made all of us for. To worship Him, to love Him, and be loved by Him. Right? Didn't Jesus say, come to me? He didn't say, come to ritual. He didn't say, come to ceremony. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So praying to Vishnu or Mary or Allah or relying on science, those are no ways to God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He says that you will live even if you die. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. 1 Peter 2 tells us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. That tells us Jesus was tortured and killed in order that he could deliver hypocritical worshipers like me and like you. And again, God made us. God made us to be worshipers. As I consider Amos, there's two, two takeaways that I have from this. I see an admonition. And I see an encouragement. The admonition is, don't participate in the activities of church and worship while harboring rebellion against God the rest of the week. Don't do that. And don't forget your relationship with God is interconnected to your relationship with other believers. And the encouragement I see from Amos is, you know, God does desire worship. Jesus said in John 4 that the Father seeks he does seeking. Do you know that? We need to seek Him. He is seeking those who are true worshipers, who worship Him in spirit and truth. And again, we will find the greatest satisfaction and joy as we do what God made us to do, which is to have a relationship with Him that through worship, loving Him, and experiencing His love for us. Seek me and live. Let's pray. Lord, may that be the echo and cry of our hearts that we would be constantly seeking You, desiring You, that our worship would be devoted and undistracted. Lord, we all struggle with this. I struggle with this, Lord. It's so hard to live in this life and not have those distractions and various sins and enticements and even things that don't seem sinful but can become idols because we love them more than you. And I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts or cultivate in us or to love for you, one another. Lord, help us to ponder your majesty. Give us a greater glimpse of who you are. 
Lord, help us to love our neighbor. Lord, to also not rely on religious activity as an indication of our relationship with you. And Lord, just may you work in us, Lord, to give you full, wholehearted devotion. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending him. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. And it is in your name we pray these things. Amen.